Hello and welcome to the Black Ladder podcast, a collection of conversations with interesting black individuals who not only do amazing work, but are consciously helping others to climb the career ladder too. We'll be sitting on my sofa talking about what they do, how they got there, lessons learned along the way, and what being black in their workplace means to them. I'm your host, Ife, bringing you life without the L. Hope you're comfy. Let's get to it. Today's guest is Dr. Aneka Abalokwe, a tech, digital governance and diversity specialist who is passionate about the intelligent use of technology and governance. Her corporate career spans over 25 years, culminating in a return to her independent boutique consulting firm Micromax, which she is founder and CEO of. She is also one of the first Afro-Caribbean professionals in the UK to sit on the board of a top European digital transformation organisation. On this week's episode, we talk about business etiquette, the exec level interview process, dance, being the only black woman in a boardroom, and last but not least, the OBE she was awarded in 2019 for services to business by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Welcome to the Black Ladder podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you on. And what I'd like to first do is get to know you because nobody, everyone who's listening doesn't know you the way I know you and the way your family and friends know you. So it'd be great if we could get to know you with a quick fire round. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds perfect. I'm delighted to be here, Ife. Thank you so much for having me on your um, program. Fantastic. Okay. So the first question is a pretty easy one. It's what's your name? <laughs> My name is Neka Abulokwe. To some people, some people refer to me as Dr. Neka. Some people refer to me as Dr. Neka Abulokwe, but my name is Neka Abulokwe. And what's your job title right now? I'm the founder and CEO of a boutique consulting firm called Micromax Consulting. Yay. (laughs) So the next question is, what motivates you? Well, I'm motivated by the things I do well. I'm motivated by dance. I love to dance. I am motivated by young people who I take delight in inspiring. I am motivated by the sense of brilliance and excellence, excellence and brilliance in what I do. And most of all, to all of those, I'm motivated by value add. Being able to add value to things is a brilliant motivator for me. Fantastic. So we're going to rewind back a little bit. I would like to know, when you were younger, let's say between age four and 11, what did you want to be? Because I was very inquisitive as a young child, everybody thought I was going to be a lawyer. And because I really didn't know any different, I thought that that was what I was going to be. And um, I, at that time, didn't necessarily see the future. I saw the presence, I enjoyed the presence. And the one thing I enjoyed doing very much when I was young was dancing. Until today. That has underpinned me from my um, young days to today. So at that time, I would have said, um, if you'd asked me, um, yes, I'd love to be a lawyer, a businesswoman, something in that sense. And, you know, and, um, and things have changed and morphed as I've grown older. Okay. What was your first ever job you had? Oh, I've got to think back to that now. Uh, I remember my first ever vacation job. 
was working for an architect. I have a sister who's an architect and um, one of her mentors needed somebody to come and help with the filing, just office tasks around the office, mm-hmm. filing, photocopying, running little errands here and there. I think I must have been about 14 or 15 at the time. And it was it was something I did with great pride. I didn't know anything about the um, business world or the um, office environment, but I remember going, um, looking forward to going in there. She was doing her, what you call your industrial training at the time there. And then I would go in there and with pride, I would work with them, get to know the office, the people in the office. I became kind of like the office pet, but it was something that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. So that was my first ever job. Of course, I did chores around the house for which if I did well, I would get, I would, I would, I would get um, rewarded, you know, so. I would help my mom around the house or my mom had a school and I would help her with doing just different things in the school, whether it's arranging the chairs or entertaining the kids because they were quite young kids and things like that. So I would get um, um, rewarded for those kind of tasks around the house. And um, also my father as well. My father was very good at um, um, rewarding good behavior just in terms of even doing things that you would do around the house, but also understanding that when you did things well, you were rewarded for them. It may not necessarily have been monetary, but it could be um, in terms of just getting little um, presents here or there or little mm. sweeties or things like that. So just things that would really excite and motivate a kid, mm. those kind of things. Also, my siblings were, I, I'm the last of six. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's quite a gap between myself and my older siblings. And um, for those as well, they were very much, I mean, they were very, very, um, they have been integral in my life and my development as well. And they would, um, they always set the pace for me. I looked up to every last one of um, five of them. And um, would often get rewarded um, in terms of even being taken out of them. Mm, yes. Music, you know, dance, things like that. So it was a, so reward was very, very broad for me. It wasn't just in the monetary sense. It was mm. just um, something that you get for doing well, or, mm. and then and, and and setting that standard for me. Okay. So we'd like to know briefly about your education. Now, this could you could just tell us a little bit about maybe the A levels you did, what university you went to, what degree you studied. Um, my formative years were spent in Nigeria, so I did up until my first degree in Nigeria. Uh, my primary school was Port Harcourt Primary School, really good primary school in Port Harcourt. My mother was a teacher in that school when I was in, the, uh, in Port Harcourt Primary at the time. I then went on to um, a federal government girls college, um, Aboloma, which was one of the federal, uh, sponsored by the federal government, another brilliant school. I spent from my form one to five in federal government college. Um, I when at the time I did my O levels, I, I majored in the arts, so I was very much steeped in the arts, and then um, went into university, University of Port Harcourt, and um, where I read history. Uh, my first degree was in history, um, a subject that I was I really I thoroughly enjoyed, and um, I did well at, and then moved to the UK. So after then, so when I think when I was about twenty one upon my graduation, I came to the UK. So my formative and my baseline education was all done in Nigeria. And something, um, I'd just like to add to that, something that put me in really good stead to come out here to the UK. At the time, I did not know it. But when I look back, I see that I had a very, very solid foundation in terms of um, the family background and also in terms of my education mix in Nigeria that put me in very good stead to succeed in the UK. Yes, I completely agree with that. In, even in that, I had the challenges in Nigeria because I wasn't an A student, you know, and um, I had problems. Um, I was undiagnosed. I had dyslexia. So I had problems with my reading, sometimes my writing and um, 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 numbers and numerics. 
And at the time in Nigeria, the school system was such that um, it wasn't based on age. So you weren't put in a class based on age. It was based on ability. Mm. And um, based on that, I was put back two years. My parents made me repeat two years because mm. I did struggle in school. So I did. I repeated one year in my primary school. Mm. So I was a year behind my peers. And then in secondary school as well, I did my first year twice. Besides, I moved schools. Um, so I was two years behind my peers, which was quite um, psychologically challenging yeah. for me. And um, knowing that your um, the people you started off with were two years ahead of you. But interestingly enough, when I then moved into the arts and then I began to major in the arts, I found I, mean, I just excelled. So once I, in, my, in my third year where you do um, the art sciences and the arts in Nigeria, um, when I finished my third year and went to my fourth year, so form four and form five, and I was in a pure art stream, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But having said that, Ife, Today, I major in STEM, in the sciences, yeah. and I'll tell you all about that. Yeah. So it's, it's quite an interesting, um, it's, it's quite an interesting um, career pathway for me, education and a career pathway for me. Yes, yeah. mm. that's true. I'm so excited to get to this, but we have one more question in the quick fire round. It's a random question, but I like to ask it because I am actually putting together a chart to see what people do and what answer they give for this. So the final question is, what's your favorite color and why? Interesting. My favorite color is, I would say it's burnt orange. Ooh. Why? It's an unusual one, burnt orange, because it is warm, at the same time fiery. It is, it stands out. And most importantly, it complements my skin tone. Oh, I like that. So, no, it's true. Yeah. And I draw a lot of um, confidence from my skin tone and that's and that sort of color even my glasses so i have my glasses have a bit of red but the rim around them are is burnt orange you know and that really does set it off for me so yes n- nice question actually <laughs> okay everyone we are back with part two of the black ladder podcast and right now we're going to dive straight in and talk about Dr. Neka Abulokwe's career journey. I guess it'd be great if we could start from the day you left University of Port Harcourt and run <laughs> all the way to today. So would you like to kick us off? I I wanted to, I was going to say we should start with your first role, but I actually think there might be some stuff in the middle that I might have missed out from the day oh, you yes. left university. Okay, I'll, I'll fill in the gaps, yes. So um, I left Nigeria in 1991 after I graduated from University of Port Harcourt. So I graduated with a degree in history and came out to the UK. I came out to the UK to, to work and to study and to do a master's degree. But at the time, you had to have lived in the UK resident for three years to then get gain the home student status in order to then get gain the home students fees to do your master's. So I then started up by working in Ministry of Justice in an admin role. And I did that and thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, at that time, I was footloose and fancy free. I didn't have any cares in the world, went in there, rolled up my sleeves, and I was an administrator, an administrative assistant in the civil service, and worked with pride. Um, that gave me, the three years gave me the time to understand the UK quite well and understand what it is I really wanted to do and then explore the markets and understand what I wanted to do as a, as a second degree, which was also in history. Um, I did that um, at the University of London, Birkbeck College, 
and um, started that, I think it was must have been in about 95, so 91 to 95 or 94, 95, thereabouts, yes, um, and um, started that. And at the same time, I started my um, degree. I then moved to the Health Education Authority. The Health Education Authority was another area in which I was doing more um, project um, office work and um, enjoyed that as well. Um, that helped me because I was doing my master's at the time and working, so it was it was good to balance both. And that gave me a good understanding and sort of that was my segue into technology because at, um, at the Health Education Authority, I found out that I was doing more IT kind of tasks because I had a natural flair for technology. So anything that went wrong, I was able to help them fix it. We didn't have a networked environment and the internet and all of that then. Things were very local. Mm -hmm. And in my spare time, I would look very much into building my own PCs, you know, getting my own, um, buying my CD-ROMs and just building everything from scratch. And that bled into my work life. And I really enjoyed that. Anyway, fast forward, um, I worked at the Health Education Authority for, um, I think it was about four or five years. And at that point in time, I did quite a lot. I'd finished my master's and um, did stuff with the WHO, World Health Organization, and just established myself as a budding professional. So from leaving the Health Education Authority, I then transitioned to the private sector, um, to the uh, .com. That was the time of the .com boom and the infancy of the sort of dot-coms taking off. And I, I worked for a dot-com called, it was a German conglomerate called Bertelsmann Online, B-O-L. And there I held my first technical managerial role. I was brought in as a technical manager responsible for leading the developers and um, the database administrators in an Oracle environment and to build that team. Mm. Bertelsmann Online were a competitor to Amazon, Ah. And they had aspirations. So they, initially, people thought they were books online. They were the selling books, and they moved to music, and they moved to film, you know, videos, films, CDs, and things like that, and DVDs. And they had aspirations at the time to take on Amazon. And um, so I worked with them um, for about two, three years in a managerial role, and then moved into consulting, so IT services consulting, and I started my first job. But with all of these, I mean, I started traveling quite a lot. So I was working um, in, in Germany as well as around Europe. We had um, offices around Europe for um, Bertelsmann. And then when I moved into consulting, I started working in the UK, working in America. But these were all um, sort of managerial roles in the IT services um, industry. And then um, transitioned into more project delivery. As I started delivering bigger and bigger and more strategic projects, I started moving up the project delivery. So I started working as a program project manager, senior project manager, program manager, program director, delivery director, and then moved up to become an executive director at the board level. So my career has been very much one that has been a, it has been fueled by my love for IT, my passion and love for IT, my motivation to do well, but at the time, it was very different because at that time, I didn't necessarily kind of um, feel any different. I just went in there and um, highly determined to succeed in a profession that I actually understood and loved. Mm. Mm. Wow. How did you make sure your passion and love for IT didn't get diminished? You see, that shone through and others could see it mm. as well. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult and it wasn't something I had to make a conscious effort 
These were things that happened. So as I said to you, I, I joined initially in an administrative role and doing sort of an administrative task, project task. But because, um, and this was a time when computers were beginning to come to the fore, and I was very interested in, 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 in advancing that even personally, but also that bled into the workplace. So it was a, it, and oftentimes I would be the person who knew the most about it. So I would be the go-to person. You see, and that began to flourish. Also, luckily for me, I was fortunate to have some very good managers who saw that potential in me and helped me build that potential. So also, yes, also another thing about it was that, um, remember, I was a black woman in all of this, mm-hmm. but it, I never, I really wasn't conscious of that. When I came to the UK, I wasn't, I, I mean, I'd come from a country like Nigeria you know, so I wasn't even aware. I mean, I, of course, I was aware I was black, mm-hmm. but it 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 wasn't. I wasn't coming to make a statement. It just so happened that I happened to be a black woman. Mm-hmm. But at, at that time in in technology, there were no others, so it was easy to stand out and it was easy to shine. And, and because it was something that I was keenly interested in, you know, I shone and I was able to do really, really well and excel in that area. I must add that. I had to actually go back and start to do the underpinning courses to make myself, um, to equip myself. Mm-hmm. So even things like understanding the operating systems, understanding applications, understanding how um, the different languages, um, the fourth generation languages and things like that. You uh-huh. mentioned that you had some great managers. I wondered if you could tell us a few key points of what made them great, good managers for you. They realized the, um, the potential in me. They gave me the opportunities, and sometimes created the opportunities for me to succeed. They encouraged me. And to a large example, there were managers that I wanted to emulate and I also respected. They led by example. But it was also incumbent upon me to do my part of it as well. So if they were opening the doors, I had to show up and show up well and go through those doors because I was also accountable to those managers who were opening those doors for me. So it was important that I also performed, okay? And also I was recognized and rewarded for my performance. And for me, I was also conscious because as I said before, um, I was I was I was a lone ranger in terms of I mean I was working in a predominantly white male dominated industry. I didn't find it hostile. But I knew that um, I stood out and I could stand out for good and for bad as well. So if I did things wrong, of course, you could stand out for good reason and bad. Yeah. So that, that was a check and balance for me and making sure that when I, when I put my best foot forward, I was an ambassador. I had to put my best foot forward and show and demonstrate that, listen, I was just as good, if not as um, better, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and open the door for others as well. So you're, you're in that trailblazing ambassadorial role. So I, I think this is probably a good point if we could move to your executive director role at Soprasteria. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. That's an executive director. How did you get that role or how were you okay. approached? It's, it's, it's quite interesting. I'll give you a little story about how I got that role. Okay. It, I was recommended. It came by personal recommendation. Okay by somebody who I had worked with, I think, 12 years before. And this gentleman and myself, we worked for a client, and the client was Ford. 
Okay, so we worked for our organization and we were outsourced to the client at Ford. And we had a bit of a difference. And I remember we, um, the holy grail of consulting is that you, you never, you manage yourself in front of the client anyway. So we had, we had a, a particular instance whereby we had this, so we went into this meeting room and we had this exchange, you know, this really terse exchange because I remember I was delivering some stuff into his area and he was then coordinating a, a particular part of it. And we were both very diligent professionals, really hardworking, but we had very different styles. And I think we clashed and then we went into this room and we had it out. And at the end of it all, he, he put his hand out to me and says, are we done? Are we, is this right? I said, yes. And we shook hands and we left the room. I was fuming. He was fuming as well. We had got it all off our chests. And that signaled the turning point in our relationship and our working relationship. Now we delivered and we delivered well. We then moved on. So he moved on to a different organization and I moved to this, uh, moved on to working in the States, moved on to a different organization as well. And then our, our past, but we remained really good friends and professional friends and in touch. Okay. And um, he was a, an Asian gentleman who um, had had been had become really um, a good sounding board for me professionally, mm. and we moved on. And when I, and then I started doing my doctorate. Another thing I missed out was that as I worked, I always studied. So as I was doing my as a project manager, I did all my project management qualifications. As I as I moved up, I started doing executive management courses at the um, at the management the Cranfield School of Management, mm-hmm. and then as I moved into more into the more senior management exec role, I started doing an executive doctorate. Mm-hmm. Okay, alongside my working uh, my, my 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 working full time. And I was researching on things. I mean, I started my doctorate and I started researching on um, the offshore engagement because I was doing a lot of work with teams in India, you know, and then looking at governance and all of that. Anyway, he was reading my um, part of my doctoral piece. I'd, I'd send it off to him, you know, some of my research. And he says, gosh, my, my organization would really value this, you know. And I thought, well, yes, I mean, I'm glad it's, it's, it's valuable and, and, and you find this, uh, my, my research and my findings valuable. Anyway, I had left Atos to finish off my doctorate. So I had a year to finish off and complete my thesis. And he was reading my thesis and he said to me, he says, you know, we would, we really do need this within our organization. That organization at the time was Steria. And it so happened that an executive director role became um, vacant and available. And he said to me, would you apply for that? I said, no, I said, I'm really in the thick of doing, writing my thesis and I don't think so. And he says, okay, fine. And we didn't, I didn't apply for it. And he came back on the boil again six months later. And he came back and he says, listen, this role has come up again. Are you finished with your thesis? I said, well, I will be done in three months. He says, well, the recruitment cycle will take longer than three months. Let's, um, um, and he says, I would like to recommend you. And he did. Wow. And. I kind of went for the interview and I thought, oh, let's just suck it and see if it's right for me. Because I had put together this whole model of how you execute an um, operational efficiency within the delivery of IT services projects, okay, as part of my research. And my research was done on other organizations as well and very relevant. And um, I think this whole thing started probably in the January of 2013 and by... July of 2013, I started in in um, Steria, and this was an executive director role responsible for five operational functions, sitting at the executive committee, come board level of the organization. I joined the organization, and I 
it was a very convivial, I mean, it was quite a, I mean, it was a, an organization that had, was very conscious about self and other. You know, you hold the door open for somebody, literally so, you know, you're, you're thinking about the next person with quite a mature um, 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 uh, employee population. And I was one of, if not the youngest exec to join the organization. I was the first black female to join the um, at that level. And I looked very different. And I thought, whoa, this is interesting, you know. And I had a team that were, okay, they hadn't had a leader for some time and were looking to me for that leadership, okay, and to set the pace moving forward. So I was looking after corporate security, which was like cybersecurity, business continuity, which is very topical now yeah. in the COVID crisis, yes. business continuity, <laughs> um, business assurance, which is governance risk and assuring the business, you know, delivery excellence, um, quality assurance, you know, these areas. And then these areas that were actually the heartbeat of the organization yeah. and completely transforming or replatforming them over a three to four year period. Now, Stereo got... Um, um, taken over, um, Sarah merged or uh, was acquired by Sopra. And we now had to do the merger or the, um, the, um, the merger and acquisition, the transformation, the integration first, mm. then the transformation of the business and then the digitization of the business. So it became a much, and then I was responsible for the operational governance of all of that. So it became a really, really good project. Mm. Wow. I'd like to dial back a little bit. You okay. said the interview process there was about, you started in January and started the role in July. So about six, seven months. What made up that interview process? Like, was it, I mean, of course, all I know about interview process is going to an interview, doing a first one, a second one, and maybe a written or a computer test. But I'm sure that's not what yours was. But what was the different elements of that interview process that interesting interview process and I'll tell you why it took that long at that level it usually does take that long because they have um I was a direct recommendation but they had other candidates as well so they had headhunters out there going out to source the right candidates okay um for me at that point in time I was I had left my full-time um employment to then finish off my doctoral studies so I had finished my thesis but I had also started working in the Middle East so I got a a, a contract in Qatar and I was actually helping them with the setup of the 2022 um, World Cup game so these were the building of the stadium and the infrastructure and all of that so working out there okay so I remember I had my first interview before I left for Qatar and at the time I didn't even know I was leaving for Qatar I had the interview in January and that went very well. So that was more of a mm, fact-finding. Let's see if this sort of this culture, this was the culture of the organization. It was there was some sort of um, synergies there. And um, and I I really enjoyed the first interview. It was relaxed. It was um it was more of a discursive conversation between two equals looking to see if we could actually there was a there was a meeting of the minds. And because remember I was coming out of doing my doctoral studies, I had quite clear philosophies about about how um, operations. IT operations should be run. And I had come from ascending that career ladder. So I knew the ills of things that hadn't gone right. And, and even when I was a project manager, and when you see senior management behaving in particular ways, I, there were things that I thought, mm, if I was in that position, I'd do things very differently. Mm. So the interview process was very much, um, was that I had two interviews with them. The second interview was by video link mm. because I was away, I was abroad. Yeah. Okay. And um, they pretty much confirmed it on the on the call, you know, saying, "Listen, when 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 are you coming back?" And then I had to come back, and I was also completing my um 
my, uh, I had to defend my thesis. So I had my viva as well. So I had to prepare for the defense of my thesis, which I did in early um, July, I think it was. And I started work with them in July. So it took that long, really, because I had to also wind down what I was doing, prepare for my um, defense of my thesis with Cranfield School of Management. And then once I defended and successfully defended it on that day, I think I started the very next day. Wow. You know, So it was that, yeah, that sort of <laughs> um, recruitment process. Yeah, quick turnaround. Yeah. But it was more about chemistry. See, at that level, it's all about chemistry and fit. Mm -hmm. Do you fit that organization? Do are you able to go in there well. yeah. and exactly yes so, yes and so it's a two-way process you're both assessing one another mm. and for me there, there was the added thing or the added benefit because i needed to i needed the grounds to then operationalize my findings mm. my research findings which underpin what i do today you mentioned that you you've always studied or in the past you were always studying alongside work i've always wanted to maybe i've thought about doing an mba or a master's or something but for me, it's a funding. I've always thought, how will I fund this? Because if I fund this through my, if I work and study, it's fine. I sort of have an income I can fund it with. But if I want to focus on like, you know, some MBAs are like intensive one year course, how will I do that? So I guess what, my question to you, what advice would you give other people out there who are thinking of studying and working at the same time? How do they not only fund, but what advice would you give that you used to manage your work life or work study balance? Um, that's an interesting question. And I, because I studied alongs alongside working, I was able to fund my um, education. And I must say that the doctoral program was very expensive. Yeah. I think it was in excess of about 50, 60,000 in terms of the fees, but you had the ancillary costs and things. So that was just the base fees. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll tackle the work-life balance first because you have to, uh, in order to study and work, you do you you don't have much of a life mm. um, after all of that i mean you spend a lot of your time at work but you also spend a lot of your time studying but the smart way i did it was that i i you see my work also informed my studies mm. you see so if i was so like when i was doing my i, I use my doctorate as an example mm -hmm. my work was my research bed because I did an executive doctorate. I did a, doc a, doctorate, um, um, a doctorate in business administration. So one level up from the MBA, mm -hmm. I did a DBA, okay? Mm -hmm. And to, to, in order to do a DBA, you had to be a senior executive and um, effecting strategic change within your organization. Mm -hmm. You see, so alongside doing all the empirical research and everything else, I mean, it's, 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 it's on par with the PhD, Alongside doing all of that, I had to be effecting strategic change within my organization. Mm -hmm. So that was also beneficial to my organization. So my even some so, so some of the things and I was funding that. So I didn't so my organization didn't fund that. I funded that myself, but it was tied to some of my objectives. Yeah. You know. So some of the things, so some of the output I would get from my doctoral studies, I would would be input into training courses within your organization because it had to show value and demonstrate value. I mean, this was not just studying in a vacuum. I wasn't building theory. Mm -hmm. I was building theory as well as practice. I was effecting good um, change within the organization. Yeah. And my area just happened to be governance. And governance, how best can you effect change is when you can see it happen, when you can operationalize it within. Mm -hmm. So there was a feedback loop into my studies. I believe that you were in this role for around four years. Yeah. What came comes next after this role, and why? Why was there a change? 
So that was the exec director role. Yep. And that was sitting at the helm of the organization, mm-hmm. you know, and um, in a big leadership role, and which I thoroughly enjoyed. And once we had reached a point whereby we had, had done the gamut, you know, in terms of, um, you know, we had, I got to see the organization implementing new ways of working. We were then acquired and then we went through the, the, the merger, the acquisition, the integration, the transformation, and then the digitization of the organization. I'd been through that entire cycle. And um, we had seen several, um, huge successes, and our external assessors had come um, within, uh, had, had done the assessment, and I remember the feedback process, and they, they had said that, listen, you guys are you know, introducing new ways of working, which are now informing industry. Okay? And for me... That in itself signaled that um, it had been hugely successful in a multinational organization. But now I had a bigger task to now go out there and then begin to work with industry, to now inform industry of the new practices. And this was a new um, incarnation or an innovative form of governance, people-centric governance, okay, which had been operationalized in this organization, which had been validated, which had been had worked quite well. Now let's take it outwards. And um, so at that point, and I'd always done my doctorate with a view to setting up a consulting um, organization. And, you know, you do a doctorate to create new knowledge, to advance knowledge. And so, um, yes, yeah, so take, take this bigger. And I decided to, um, mid-2017, I left. And at that point in time, I was a bit burnt out. Mm. So decided to spend more time with my family um, and just chill out for about um, six months to a year and um, so that was in 2017 I started off Micromax Consulting then but it really kind of took off in earnest with my first um, board appointment in 2018 so I had a few clients and then just started working on but I, I decided that I would initially start working with the professional institutions so the Chartered Institute for, um, for IT which is a British Computer Society um, working alongside the um, the ISACA, uh, which is also, which is more around um, corporate security, um, not the corporate cyber security, sorry, um, working with the Governors Institute, and then just uh, introducing this new flavor of governance. And that in itself was has been very well received in terms of um, the um, the accolades and the um, the awards that I've received post um, corporate life. So there was a, there's a life after corporate life, and that has just fueled me. Now, if I said that I left with the intention of going big, um, I would be you know I I knew that there was a need, but I didn't realize just how much of a need there was out there. Okay, and there was also a need for me to go out there because you're working full-time. You don't really, you don't, you're not looking sideways. You're not looking out, outside. But also understanding that there was also a need to then begin to mentor on a much larger scale and then begin to inspire others with that track record, okay? And then coming out and then thinking, whoa, there's a big wide world out here. There's a big wide world who, who, um, who need a new form of governance, but not just that, or, or, or where there's a need for a new form of governance. But there's also a need for mentoring, for inspiration, for all of that. I've done a lot of that as part of my corporate career. But this was a, on a very, very different scale. There was also a need to then begin to speak on public platforms begin to write journals or, or articles or things like that. And, and it, it has just exploded from there. 
you know, and that was all, and that was crowned with my um, receiving my OBE last year, which yeah. came, yes, exactly, which hit me left field. I did, you know, it was, and it was just my cl- crowning glory. Can you tell us about the day you found that out? So I remember on the day that um, it was announced, I, my first message was on LinkedIn. And this was from somebody from Sopra Stereo. And this came in at, I think it was about, when I look back at it, it came in at about 18 minutes past 11 or midnight or something, as soon as the list was, was published. And this lady wrote to me and she says, I remember you from your um, your presentations at the strategic roadshows and things like that. And we met in the lift. You may not remember me, but congratulations on your Queen's Honours. I'm thinking, what's she talking about? And as the day wore on, I was getting more and more messages. And I'm thinking, and I just featured about three days before in the top 100 role, BAME role models list that had been published here in the, mm-hmm. fin- I think it was in the Financial Times. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was thinking, these guys are a little late. To, why, why are they congratulating me now? And then, I was, and then I remember I was on the phone with my mother and I said, mommy, there's something going on here. And I'll call you back. And I went, you know, as God is my judge, I went onto Google and I put my name in Google and I started searching and I saw the voice and it said, oh, these people have received OBEs. And I said, what? And I called my mother and I said, mommy, I've just received an OBE. Oh, wow. And I went back and I started looking at this. And then I was like, what is going on here? And the following morning I called, the Monday morning I called the cabinet's office. And they have a log of everything. And they said, yes, we And I said, I remember that call. And I was wondering why it was such an <laughs> official call. I thought I was in trouble or something, but it really didn't hit me then. And... Um, I then went and started reading up about it and what it actually meant. And I was actually chilled with the enormity and incredibly humbled, you know, that I had actually been nominated and got through the uh, award process and been awarded for the Order of um, the um, British Empire. Yes, yeah. This Order of Excellence, this Award of Excellence. It was fantastic. And the investiture happened in October um Last year, mm-hmm. so there was a so it was announced in June, and then I got all the um, the um, notifications, and then um, it happened on the twenty second of uh, of um, October last year, and that was one of the proudest moments. I had my entire family here, yeah. uh, my parents in attendance, um, all and- the key people who had been key to my um, career advancement, you know, just all those people. I mean, I had a reception and they were all there and we celebrated, you know, I was, and I, I, it has, it has changed my life in many ways. I think this will link back to the question I asked you in the quickfire round. What did you wear? And what (laughs) colour were you wearing? Well, now you see that, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so now I wore an outfit by the haute couture designer called Diola Sego. She is, I think, is number one in Africa or something like that, but she is the haute couture designer, okay? And the hat was made by um, another couture hat maker, um, John 3v3, who's Emma Bassi Akenzoa. Now, these outfits, I mean, I wanted to showcase the best of Africa, mm-hmm. okay? Um, my father is Nigerian, my mother is Jamaican, okay? So I am truly Afro Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I so I enlisted their help. People ask me, has it changed you in any way? And I say, absolutely. Yeah. You know, because I have a duty to serve. Yeah. You know, I use that post nominal OBE 
with pride. Mm. You know, it's a recognition, but it's also something that it is. Um, you you have a duty to serve. It's um, you you you. It's it's conscionable. You are there to deliver a service. You see what I'm saying? So you you become a lot more service oriented. Mm. You know, and in your accountability, and just in how much you need to give back as well. You know, and just yeah, your service. Mm. Yeah, as a person. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, mm. I think we've kind of run through till today because mm. that was October 2019. Really quickly, just to end off this section, I'd love to know a little bit more about Micromax Consulting because you are CEO and founder. I want to know what a typical day is like in your own company. Okay, Micromax Consulting is just one of the many things I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Micromax mm-hmm. Consulting is a boutique consulting firm that delivers services, board advisory services. So I work at the board level on digital, tech, and diversity, those three areas. And those three areas are an embodiment of myself. So digital, tech, diversity. And when I talk about digital and tech, I talk about them under governance, okay? So the main thing I do is all around people-centered governance and advising boards in that vein. I also serve on boards as a non-executive director. So I serve for Cambridge University as part part of the Audit and Risk Committee, I'm a member of the Auditor Miss Committee for ISACA. I chair the Board Nominations Committee um, for British Computer Society. I'm on part of what we call the Organisation and Employment Committee. So I serve on different boards and other board advisory roles. So no two days are ever the same. Another thing is that I left full-time employment to do the things I love and enjoy. So I also have started playing golf. And when I worked full-time, I never did have enough, or when I worked in corporate life, sorry, I never did have enough time to enjoy and just spend with family and just spend time at home. Mm. So now I'm very, very, I guard my time jealously. Yes. I do, so on, on as an example, last week, Friday, I had three mentoring calls because I do mentor people around the world, especially young women, mm. okay? So I had... Um, mentoring sessions and those I usually have on a on a Friday on Mondays sometimes I play golf on Mondays mm-hmm. um, and sometimes depending on my schedule you know I may have consulting engagements in the UK mm-hmm. or it may be abroad I have quite a few clients abroad so that also I, I do I do travel I could I do also I also do public speaking so I may have speaking engagements, which I've had to cancel a few due to COVID yeah. recently. Yes, yeah, so I've had to cancel it. And then, I mean, my, my international travel has gone from traveling a lot to zero. <laughs> so I now have to, and then just last week, the golf um, um, courses have opened up. Yeah. But, so there's no two days that are the same. Mm-hmm. I could be attending board meetings, you know, driving up to Cambridge University. You know, I could be attending sessions or recruitment for the board. Um, I chair the board nominations committee for ISACA mm-hmm. or just working with my own clients, you know, working with them in their offices. So it's very, very different, you mm-hmm. see. But what I did was um, I set, and I, so what I call, I have a portfolio career. But within that portfolio career, I had enough time for myself as well. Yeah. You see, to downtime, to watch movies. You know, I do a lot of fitness stuff myself. You know, I do a lot of dance as well. So I can get the best of both worlds. I'm not stressed out. So I'm really beginning to enjoy life. And then I really enjoy my career at the same time. This is fantastic. Um, I think this is probably a good time for us to move on to the next section, which is all about being black.
Okay, so we are back with part three of the Black Ladder podcast, where we talk about being black. And so the first question I'm going to ask you at this time is, how has being black affected your career? Being black has affected my career in many ways. It initially wasn't an issue for me. I grew up in Nigeria. Remember, I did my formative, I spent my formative years in Nigeria, although I was born in the UK. And Nigeria is a black nation. I grew up as a first class citizen. I came to the UK, prepared to work, roll up my sleeves and get involved. And there was never really a consciousness about that. My parents had worked here and studied here, so their their, their, um, friends and their colleagues and their counterparts were mainly white. So I'd come on holiday and I'd met them before, so it was nothing new to me. The first time I really felt black was when I started working. And I started noticing the subtleties in the treatment, in not necessarily within the work environment, but outside of the work environment. So if you went out for a drink or whatever, then you begin to notice the subtleties in how um, you're treated. And that transcended my career. So that happened throughout my career and underpinned my career. It didn't stop me, however. As far as I was concerned, I was just as good as the next person. My The fact that I was a woman and black never hindered me mentally and um, in my in my work, and I was fortunate enough to have good champions, people who championed my cause, who saw beyond my gender and my color, and who helped me ascend that career ladder. So, in some ways, it 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 made me stand out, and you stand out, you can stand out for good and for bad. When I was at the helm of an organization as an executive director, I was the only black director. So I stood out. And as we know today in the tech industry, there's a lack of black, especially black female representation. And when you talk about this, um, the, the, the senior and the higher echelons, it's almost non-existent, which is not acceptable in today's world. So that in itself, it gave me a platform to be an ambassador. And I think I said sometime before, you have to be twice as good to get almost half that recognition. Or you have to work twice as hard to get that recognition. But then you are twice as good because you're working twice as hard. Which is not a fair or it's not a level playing field, but that's what happens. Yeah. I'd love to go in, in a little bit there about the boardroom. You spoke about when you were an executive director. What was that like? Physically, I guess you on your first day when you walked into your first meeting, possibly, you were the only black female there. How did that make you feel? Did well, you feel I knew like I that? would be. You see, it, no, no, not at all. I went in there to, to change things. I didn't feel let down. And just by being there, in essence, um, gave, gave me the opportunity and the room to change things. It wasn't, uh, of course, it was uncomfortable. And we forget that. Everybody, including myself, feels uncomfortable. Conversations are stilted, and people try to skirt around the issue. And this is this is my lived reality. I'm a black female, so I bring that up as soon as possible and get so we can get past that. 
and you begin to see the value that I can bring and I begin to demonstrate the value I can bring to the boardroom. And invariably in my career, that's how things have happened. You have to get past that feeling of feeling uncomfortable and feeling comfortable with the differences because the differences or the different perspectives build strength. They build resilience. You're also at a, 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 the helm of an organization whereby people, others, I mean, other black people within your organization can see that you have black leadership and a leadership, your leadership team should be a representation of your client base and your workforce and give people that equal opportunity to then ascend that career ladder. So it was bigger than just me and it bigger than I would have been doing a disservice if I felt uncomfortable and became a shrinking violet. That is not congruent to my nature and that is not something I wanted to do or I would even have done. I was a role model, I was a trailblazer, and I was there to set the example of what good looked like in senior management. I major, okay, uh, one of my core domain expertise is governance, um, be it corporate governance, be it operational governance, but ensuring that we do things in a conscionable way as a leadership and setting that pace for or being that leader that you, that you expect others to be. So it's those, those, those leadership qualities, exuding those leadership qualities. It's very important, yeah. Talking a little bit there about leadership qualities, you yourself, I, you have been a leader. You're a leader in many different aspects. In the past few weeks, after the horrific killing of George Floyd, we all know what's been happening. Social media has really jumped up. You know, Black Lives Matter movement has been reignited, is what I want to say. It's been reignited because it was always going in the background. I don't want to say it's just started, because it's always been moving. The Black Lives Matter movement has always been there, but it's been reignited again. With everything that's been happening, what would be your advice to leaders and senior management on how to address what's happening for their staff? The Black Lives Matter movement is long overdue. There's been a, as you just rightly said, over the last four weeks, there's been a groundswell of social consciousness, social consciousness across all races. I've had people come up to me. I've had friends come up to me and ask me, how are you feeling? How are you? And these are white friends who I've worked with in the past, um, also black people as well. But it's heartening to know that there is a growing consciousness across the piece. However, Organizations have come out, some organizations have come out with very positive statements about how to address and tackle Black Lives Matter. And I'm hoping that these are not just perfunctory platitudes that sound good. And once the dust settles, the state of, um, things go back to the, the norm. I'm hoping that there will be some sort of affirmative action that takes things over and beyond. I've had others who have talked to me about, oh, yes, we address diversity and we're, yes, we're looking at the BAME issue. This is very different. You see, black people have suffered different social ills and dealing with it as a collective is doing a disservice. It's not about diversity anymore. This is about black people. And the issues, I mean, the, the issues that the Asians face or the other um, minority ethnic groups face are very different. You see, so as a black female and as a black female leader, I urge people to begin to have those conversations. You know, I have brought it up in some um, organizations that I have been um, or I am a member of or um, sit on the boards or committees. And these are organizations that have remained silent so far. And when I begin to discuss this, um, they say, OK, yes, we're dealing with this under the diversity banner or we're dealing with this or, or, or it becomes a very uncomfortable discussion. I said, no, this is this is the first step.
we need to talk about it in terms of how black people feel and speak to people. Don't be afraid to come to me. Ask me about how this feels. Because the silence, your silence is not benign. It is actually quite malignant and quite toxic. And only when you begin to speak out and then begin to understand what these, um, what we the so-called unconscious biases are, you know. And I've spoken to one or two people who have who have come to me, and then when we begin to have that conversation, they say, "Oh my good word, I didn't know this. I didn't know that." And sometimes it is genuine. You know, people just do not know. But how do you get to know? You know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know unless you start to have those conversations. And only when you begin to brave those conversations and start to have those conversations as even individuals in the organizations, and that, that, that then permeates into the organization, into society at large, then do we then begin to have a feeling of how or a feel for how black people feel? You know, and then you begin to live that experience. I mean, the mere fact that a white police officer saw it fit to have his knee on another human being who was actually handcuffed. He's had his knee on his neck for in excess of eight minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Is that right? How do you treat another human being like that and think that that is acceptable? You know, what does that say to society? What does that say to society at large? So until we begin to have these conversations and even go beyond that, We've had several reviews. I mean, we had the Windrush review. We've had all these things that have happened. And these reviews have come out with recommendations. So let's take it to the government. Then what is the government doing? I mean, why are they not implementing these these recommendations? We're going to have yet another review. Another review to do what? To unearth what we already know and what is blatantly out there? So this is, it's, it's a very, it's an unfortunate time and it's a very sad time. And I speak, and I speak as a black woman who has over the last four weeks had to really dig deep and search. And I am one person who talks about diversity. I mean, I'm, I'm there for diversity and I'm there for inclusion as well. I'd like to ask you about, for some advice, not just for me, but for a few of my friends as well, who we all work in many different companies all over the UK. And something like my friends and I have been speaking about, we're like, whose job is it to bring this up? Should I have to go to my manager and say, I think you should say something? Because there has been an incident with one of my friends where she's had to go to her manager and ask them and say, you haven't said anything. I feel like not saying something is saying something. So I guess this is a question on behalf of my friend. Was it her job to go and say, what is happening? What is your stand? What is the team's stand on what's going on right now? Whose job is it? I applaud your friend because she's done exactly what I have done when this hasn't been raised by either organizations or people I feel that they should, I mean, they ought to know better. I couldn't say it is, it, it, it just depends on the situation and the context. And I think organizations should stand up. And, and it's this, it's this thing about the silence and going back to being uncomfortable. People don't want to offend. And some people genuinely don't want to offend because they don't know how to bring it up. The times I have actually broached this subject, people have been very grateful for me broaching. And I've gone the extra step to say, feel free to ask me those questions. Let us work collaboratively because by just doing that, and because I am at the helm of or the lead, a part of the leadership of organizations, then you, you begin to educate. Although, although, yes, it's not my role to educate you. But if in the absence of anything being said, 
just having that conversation and setting off that catalyst or, or that catalyst that ignites that spark, then we are doing something. And then we are leading from the top and leading by example and saying these conversations are happening and not just conversations happening. There has to be something, some action that is taken as a result of those conversations. I'm not in it for having those conversations and saying, well, okay, yes, we've had that uncomfortable conversation and put it in the, in the, um, in the bottom drawer and shut the drawer. But things need to happen. So I would ask your friend, what does she want to see happen? Or what is happening now? And what do we, and where do we need to take things to make a better world for all of us? Because we know that we as black people have a lot to contribute. And when we have the, the, the collective contribution, the tide rises for all. We are part of a productive workforce in society, within organizations. If we are excluded, these organizations are hemorrhaging talent, missing a whole perspective, and these organizations also be, need to be able to sign, um, serve their client base, who are a diverse mix of people as well. So it starts from that one conversation or that catalyst that ignites that spark. But I firmly believe that the conversations need to be, um, to be had and action rolling on from those conversations at an organization level, at a society level, governments, all of that. I have to be honest, this past few weeks have been quite difficult for me when it comes to everything that's been happening. I haven't known how to address it. I actually mentioned to somebody, I said, you know, you as a Caucasian person, whenever you jump on the calls and you're a new person and introduce you to a different country in Europe, you don't ever think about it. I said to them, for me, I have to think. When I jump onto a call, I always think, I really hope when the call comes up and the video comes on and they see me and my skin color, will they be shocked i'm like oh please let them not be racist and i was so upset with myself because i wasn't brought up to think like that but why have i adopted this environment to think like that i mean for me it's because when i've traveled to europe different parts of europe i've had people say racist things to me in the streets as i'm walking and minding my own business so that's probably why i'm i've adopted and put on all these like things on my own shoulders but and I said to my friend, I said, yo, you never have to probably think about that. But that's something I constantly think about. When the camera opens and it's me, I always think, will they be racist? What will they think that here's a black woman in a job, like, talking at me, you know? Did you ever come across that sort of feeling? I know you've traveled all over the world in your career. Have you come across any countries or have you ever felt that way? That's a very personal question to me, but I just thought I'd ask. Yes, and it's part and parcel of my life. And when I explain it to my wise colleagues, they're shocked. I have been, I have traveled, as you say, I've traveled across the world. I have um, been stopped carrying a red passport, a British passport. I've been stopped and everybody walking past me coming off a flight. This happened in Singapore. I was stopped and um, I asked why. And they said, well, and he was honest with me. I was a lone black person on that flight. I had been stopped um, from going into airport lounges. And yes, um, so um, um, the exact lounges and stuff and or, or been asked to show my boarding pass and people are walking past me straight into the lounge. I've been barred from boarding a flight and they announced that could... Um, First and business class passengers board the flight and I walked forward and the rope was put across me and opened up for the next person who happened to be my second in command. And he 
asked why, and, and the lady says, I said I'm boarding first and business class passengers. Wow. And he says, so why aren't you boarding her? He said, and she repeated it. And he said, and then she looked at my boarding pass. My seat was 2A, number 2A. And she couldn't, she, I mean, she was beside herself, but that had already happened. I walk into meetings and they go and shake my second in command, who happens to be white male. And, you know, and then, and it's always, and they know this. I mean, my teams get to understand that. So they almost expect it, you know. So it's those kind of things that happen. Okay. And these, this is just, a, I've just, I've just explained the tip of the iceberg. But I have to be strong. I have to be resilient. You know, these things hurt, but only when you begin to discuss that hurt with people and understand how, how it makes you feel does others then realize, and they walk a day in your shoes, do they then realize? You know, I have uh, an African name. I mean, I'm, Af- I'm Afro-Caribbean. My, father, my mother is Jamaican. My father is Nigerian. I was born in the UK. And I'm sure, I don't have the, um, the um, this is anecdotal, but I'm sure it has been twice as hard for me to get the jobs that I have got. But in spite of that, I have still been able because I have my intellectual might, I have my intellectual capital, and I also have those social graces as well. Or you try to have those social graces that help you integrate and help you understand what the next person is going through. You said something about um, you're hoping that they won't be racist at the end of the other, um, at the end of the line when, when the um, video call comes on. Not everybody's racist. Some people just don't know know how to, and people are are uncomfortable. They don't know how to, to address, you know. And then we we we're in a very we're in a highly sensitized mode. It's quite charged at this point in time, so people don't want to offend any further. So they don't even broach it because they're not sure how to broach this very sensitive, touchy subject. So it's not always about people being racist. Some people just want to be educated. And and then sometimes you even broaching that subject or asking that question or saying, oh, how do you feel about ongoing events and stuff? Loosens things up. And then you begin to have that dialogue between. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's important to have those, um, those that, that conversation and those conversations and also highlight it when you feel that it's, nothing is being done because this is the opportunity. This is the opportune moment to begin to highlight things that are not being done within the organization. You don't want the dust to settle or things to go cold. I guess close this off. I'd love to know, where would you like the future to go for black people in tech? What's the ideal future? Where would you like things to go in the next like, five, ten years? I just want to plan out with you. I would like to see more black representation in the senior levels of organization and not just the token tick box black representation. People who are excellent at their job, who are who have a lot of value to add, and who can come to work, feel included, feel part of that club, that, that unspoken club, and be their best people. You see, when we stop or when the decibel levels start to go down, you know, and the feeling of, uh, of um, and the disquiet and the feeling of discomfort reduces, then we know that we're getting to a point of true, not just equality, but some sort of equity in society. When we don't have to be a tick box exercise to say, oh yes, we have that person there and we have that person there, you know, and we can celebrate that. When 
we as black people stand out as black people, not as a collective in terms of, oh, lumped into diversity or lumped into the BAME story, but when we can be celebrated as truly black people and for the value we bring to the table. We have a lot to offer in society, in organizations and society at large. We're putting that out in the universe and it's, it's going to get there. It's not even hope. It's got to get there. It's got to get there. It will get there. We started. We started making um, baby steps. Um, the backdrop has been unfortunate with um, the murder of George Floyd. But it, he can't, this is one too many, and that can't um, go in vain. You know, that, that loss of life cannot be in vain. We have to stop that. We have to stop this, the, um, the, the stop and search on basis of people's color. We have to stop the discrimination in terms of um, recruitment um, based on your color. We have to begin to shatter that glass ceiling and prevent a concrete ceiling above that glass ceiling. As um, somebody eloquently said, I read um, that this week, you know, beyond the, the glass ceiling is a concrete ceiling. And that was said by um, an architect, a black female architect, Elsie mm. Wilson. And I couldn't have agreed with her more. You know, so we need to begin to work together as a collective to educate society, but also society is incumbent on society too, also seek their own enlightenment and treat people equally. We are all equal. Thank you for that. I'm really hoping during this past few weeks and during the next upcoming time period, especially now we're all home from COVID, that we all take the time to sort of listen and understand and go from this. So we are okay. back and with the last section of the Black Ladder podcast today, which has been fantastic, but this is the part I enjoy the most because I'd like you to imagine yourself on a ladder. You've been climbing your career ladder. You've done these amazing roles and I want you to look back down this ladder and say, what advice am I leaving? What are the top tips and advice I want to leave for the next person, the person who wants to do your role in the future, who wants to well, not even become you, who maybe wants to be an executive director, be on a board, be on several different boards. He wants to get an OBE from the Queen, who wants to be a delivery director. What advice would you be giving them? Or even someone who just wants to do a doctorate, like you said, what advice are you giving them that you feel you can leave on the career ladder for the next person? There's several. The easy ones that come to mind are things like commitment, and being committed to the cause. When I look back on my career, I look at the things that have, I look at things that, um, you know, I was a warrior. And because I was a warrior, I applied myself. You know, I didn't want to get things wrong. And sometimes you learn from your mistakes. You know, but the one thing I say to people is, if you're going to fail, fail quickly. Don't go down that, if you realize you're failing, fail fast. You know, and I say to my team, it's all right to fail. Fail fast, learn the mistakes or the lessons and move on, okay? Commitment is another thing. You see, I have been quite passionate about what I do and committed to the cause. So if I am delivering a project, I'm fully committed to it. Mm -hmm. I do the best I can. And 
people, I mean, people, you see, commitment is something that um, it's, it's, you don't do it because people notice. It just shines through. Okay? And um, doing things you enjoy. But the big thing about it is, and one thing that people are not taught, is business etiquette. Okay? What do I mean by business etiquette? It is those little things that make a big difference. Courtesy. Thoughtfulness. Addressing people properly. Your salutation. The way you sign off a letter. The way you speak to senior management. The way you you come into the office. I mean, even in just in terms of, I remember uh, my mom. My mom is quite a proper person, and she um, um and um, you know she's um very very a stickler for um, um just in terms of how you um present yourself and stuff. And she used to say, "Oh, your dress um, should be um, your hemline should be below the knees." You know that kind of thing, yeah. And it's just, I mean, I'm, this is I just use this as an example, okay? But just in terms of even your appropriateness, your dressing appropriateness for work and things like that, and then just also how you then um, carry yourself as well. You see, people notice these things as well, mm-hmm. and it's all right. I mean, it's it's wonderful to be extremely. I mean, good, and this is why I call your technical skills in terms of what you bring to the table in terms of your skills. But the other things, the ancillary things, the interpersonal skills, you know, how your written form, even just how you write in terms of your written form, your spoken form, your, um, you know, how you present yourself as well. How um, are you courteous to people? Are you, I mean, in terms of even things like, I mean, do you respond to messages? Are you, if you can't make a meeting, do you have the courtesy of going back to say, listen, I can't make this meeting or I'm running late for this meeting or you apologize for running late? You know, those kind of things, you know, which I call business etiquette which are things that that they are these little things that make a big difference and these are the things that make a lasting impression as well show up there show up big show up proud but at the same time be a person of your word you know if you're going to do something do it well you know excellence brilliance all those things are very very important Mm. if i would if there's something i would do less as i said before Mm. is um I think I'll be, I would have been, when I look back, I'd have probably been a bit bolder with certain things. Mm. I would have um, worried less. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I would have had a lot more um, self-belief because there were times when I did doubt myself. Mm. And one of my bosses said to me, he says, listen, you don't speak up in meetings a lot. And when you do, you're usually right. Speak up more. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that was a white male that said so to me, you know, and he, and this, and I still have that, that email. He wrote, this was part of my appraisal. You know, he says, Neko's usually right, but she needs to speak up more in meetings. And I thought, wow, that is, you know, have more confidence in yourself, mm. in your ability to do that. So the big thing for me is the business etiquette. etiquette. It's very important. That. I really love that because it's actually reminded me. I think it's something that when you first start a new job or even your first career, you it's quite evident and you remember it a lot. But then as time goes on, you maybe forget. But I love that. Thank you for giving us that advice. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been such a great. I've had a great time talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Thank you once again. I guess my last question before we close off is, I'd like to ask, if someone wants to ask you advice on everything you've spoken about today, where can they find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I think all the the social media platforms. So it's um, Neka Abolokwe. It's a bit of a 
a unique, unusual name, so there's only one of me, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> so it's um, easy to find, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. I will also be including these details in the bio on all podcast platforms. But something I would like to mention is that I've seen Dr. Abelot Kwe's Instagram and she has, there's a segment in there where she does a great <laughs> dance on stage. And before we close up, I would actually love if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, that Instagram, that was my claim to fame. Oh, that dance. Okay. As I said before, I love to dance. And as I, as I was um, growing up, I danced in Nigeria. I mean, I really danced at competitive levels and um, I went to give a talk. This was the IWOW, the Inspired Women of Worth's um, annual summit. And I was talking about boardroom dynamics, governance, you know, all the big, you know, just big, big topics and stuff. And um, I finished um, to a standing ovation. And as I walked off the stage, the compare says, oh, Dr. Necker, we remember you were a dancer. And I thought, oh, well, yes. And I was kind of motioning to leave the stage. And then this music just came on. She says, you must dance for us. And you never lose that. And the thing, and it, I remember this this record comes on and I just start to dance, you know, freestyle, doing the moonwalk. You know, I used to do a break dancing and stuff like that before. And these, you never lose those moves. And I started to. And this was a 36-second clip of my dance, which is on my Instagram page, which I put retrospectively. But I remember I left Lagos that day after the summit and I went to Port Harcourt. And when I landed in Port Harcourt, I put on my phone and my phone was going crazy because two people had videoed it and put it on the social media. <laughs> and this thing was, I mean, it got so many hits and so many views and people just, and I was more, I was known more for that dance. And this is why I talk about diversity as well, because I was known more for that dance. And that in, in essence propelled me. That video went viral. <laughs> Talking about dance and as well in the boardroom, you asked me about when I went to Soprasteria in terms of that at the board level. Yeah. And I actually brought in a street dance crew to help on the away day. Oh, wow. And we taught, you know, they took, the, these guys were brilliant. There were five of them. You know, young black kids, five of them took the people away to different teams, taught them how to dance. And we put this whole ensemble together. But the metaphor there was that you work in silos. But when you come together as a collective, mm. you're much more powerful. And that video is on um, YouTube. It was it was uploaded, I think it was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And that video, you can find the entire team doing the street dance move. Oh. You know, they taught them. And that was wonderful. So that in itself, my dance has helped me propel my corporate career yeah. and just helped me a lot. And this is something that I'm still very passionate about. Yeah. And I still love to dance and to teach dance as well. So, yeah. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Um, Thank you. This is like even how everything came off has just been fantastic. And I just know that this podcast, I was like struggling. At one time I was like, oh, I don't know if I should do it. If I wouldn't, will I get anyone? But. I've had such great responses and the Indeed. way I even came about to finding you was just, yes. wow. So yes, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and they've been very good. Very, very, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did my homework as well. That's another thing about success as well, you know, because I did, I listened to you. I listened to your style. You know, we, we had a quick conversation, mm. you know, and these are all things that we prepare for. Mm. You know, and it's also respectful. You see, it is it is respectful to the next person. Respect is not just about the older people. It's about people around you and how you mm. treat people. Yeah. You know, it, it is very important for the success. Yeah. yeah. And you're just if passing you. all this down. So this yes, is so yes, cool. yes, yes, yes. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity as well. You're <laughs>
to share and subscribe to the Black Ladder podcast. It's available on all podcast platforms.